the teams you care about. The Patriots are now closer to the bottom of the AFC than the top. That's a fact. The stories that matter to you. Trevor Story, man, he makes the Red Sox much, much better in 2022. This is your home for New England sports. I'm just wondering what happens next for UVA, because I think there could be a lot of turnover on that roster. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM-FM and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Stacked Brady Farkas Show today. It is a Tuesday on WDEV-AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. All 90 minutes, right up until 7 o'clock with Jazz with George Thomas takes over. Then Eye on the World with John Batchelor comes up at 9 o'clock. In 15 minutes, we're going to talk a little UVM hoops, a little post, a little end-of-season recap with Alex Abrami of the Burlington Free Press. Got some notes on the Patriots as well and a lot of more information on the Boston Red, Red Sox. You can get on on uh, 802-585-3026 at your Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. You can also get in on our brand-new Facebook live chat and our YouTube live stream as well. So get your comments in everywhere, and everybody, let's waste no time. Let go! Five, four. Three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. I think that Alex Cora has his work cut out for him in the communications department. And I think that Alex Cora is going to play a huge role in determining the future of Xander Bogarts with the Boston Red Sox. Here's what I mean. We've been looking at this Xander Bogarts and Red Sox situation. We've been looking at this the wrong way. Everyone is looking at it and trying to figure out, well, can they pay Devers? Can they pay Trevor Story? And can they pay Bogarts? Everybody's been looking at it and saying, can they afford all three? And presuming they can't, they're saying that Bogarts is gone. That's how everybody's been looking at this all along. And I came to the realization a few hours ago that that's the wrong way to look at this. Because it's just fundamentally not true that they can't pay all three of them. Right now, as we speak today, the Red Sox are paying big money already to Xander Bogarts. They're playing, paying big money already to Trevor Story. They're paying big money already to J.D. Martinez. And they're paying $17 million, pretty big money, to Nathan Evaldi. So they're already paying four guys pretty big money. Next year, J.D. Martinez, that salary comes off the books. Next year, Nathan Evaldi, that salary comes off the books. So the Red Sox will have the payroll flexibility to ultimately pay all three of their infielders if they want to. We want them to extend Devers. They've got the money to do that. They're already paying Story. They have the financial freedom, the financial runway, to go sign Xander Bogarts too. They absolutely could do it. They're paying four pretty big contracts now. They could very easily pay those three in the future. So this idea that they can't afford Xander Bogarts, that's just fundamentally not true, and we've been looking at it from a money standpoint, and that's the wrong way to look at it. So it's not about the money. What it is about to me is communication. If you want Xander Bogarts to remain a Red Sox player for life, then Alex Cora 
is going to play a very key role. How can he massage this situation in order to make everyone happy? Because it's not going to come down to money. The situation is going to come down to ego. And Alex Cora will have a huge role in massaging those egos. Because look at what's at play here. Trevor Story is a good shortstop. Trevor Story wants to be a shortstop. Can Alex Cora convince him to stay at second base to cede that position to, to Xander Bogarts for a while longer? That's one avenue that Cora could take. And can he do it? Can he communicate well enough with Story to get him to stay at second base? Xander Bogarts wants to be a shortstop. He's a little bit less good of a shortstop than Story. Can Alex Cora convince him to move positions either next year or in the coming years? Can he do that? Because Alex Cora has got to hit a home run with somebody on the communication front. Can he communicate well with Story and convince him to go to second? Can he communicate well with Bogarts and get him to go to second? Can he communicate well enough with Bogarts and get him to go to third? And then can he communicate well enough with Devers to get him to be the DH? There are ways to make this work positionally. The Red Sox can make this work money-wise with Xander Bogarts. The Red Sox can make it work positionally to keep Xander Bogarts. The question is, can Alex Cora communicate with everybody well enough to get them to buy in? That's the question. And it's going to be hard. It's actually going to be very hard. I used to think this was about money. Well, oh, can they really afford to pay three infielders? Oh, will they really have the financial flexibility? They've got it. The financial issue is not an issue. Evaldi, Martinez, that money is off the books. They could resign them. They could resign them to different deals, but the money they make currently is off the books. Money is not the issue with Xander Bogarts. They can keep all three of these guys and pay them all big money if they choose to. It's going to come down to communication. Does Is Story willing to stay at second? Is Bogarts willing to move off of shortstop? And that's going to be a tough sell, as John Tomasi of NBC Sports Boston tells us. I don't know. And you'd still have to ask one of them to move. I think a lot of people say, well, next year Story becomes a shortstop and Bogarts moves to second. I talked to Xander Bogarts. I asked him at spring training last week, you know, how do you feel about moving to second? Bro, I'm a shortstop. Like, he doesn't want to move now. He's not going to want to move next year either. And there are going to be teams that will view him as a shortstop. So that's going to be a tough sell. Even if you can get him to move, can you get Devers to go to D This is going to be really hard for Alex Cora. He's going to play a huge role. A huge role. Okay? Uh, communication here is going to absolutely be key. Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. Uh, Virginia in Starksboro says, don't need Bogarts. Marcelo Meyer is big league ready. Yeah, that, that's not even close to true. I mean, Marcelo Meyer was the Red Sox first round pick last year. He's 19 years old. He just turned 19 years old. He's never played a season of professional baseball. Marcelo Meyer's excellent, but he's at least three years away. At least three years away. Kyle Glazer of Baseball America, he was on with us on 
February 7th, and the crew just found this. What did he say about Meyer? But, you know, as talented as Marcelo Meyer is, this is a kid who was in high school last year. He's only played the complex leagues. Minimum, this is a four-year journey he's going to be on, and that's if everything goes right. Okay, minimum. Four, minimum four years. So that's – Marcelo Mayer is not – he's not even close. So, I mean, what's likely or what's possible is that Bogarts is gone, story plays short, and then Meyer come, or Mayer comes up. I'm going to call him Marcelo Mayer every day until he comes up. Marcelo uh, – or Marcelo Meyer, I'm going to call him. It's Marcelo Mayer. He's going to be ready here maybe after Story's contract. You know, Story's got an opt-out up for four years. Then maybe Mayer is ready. But he is not a reason to not keep Xander Bogarts around. Lou and Westford, I don't follow analytics that closely, but shouldn't Bogarts be willing to move positions if that's what's best for the team? Um, Lou, I think at this point in his career, Xander Bogarts should have the freedom to do what's best for him, not necessarily what's best for the team. I say this all the time. Athletes are motivated by different things. Athletes are motivated by different things at different parts of their career. You have to figure out what exactly is motivating you right now if you're Xander Bogarts because that will dictate if you're willing to move positions. It's not about the team. When you become a free agent, and Xander Bogarts has a negotiated opt-out in his contract, so when he opts out and he's a free agent, he has earned the right and has been given the freedom to make the best decision for him. So it's not about just changing positions to benefit the Red Sox. It's really, what does Xander Bogarts see best for him? If Xander Bogarts is motivated by championships, now he's already got two, if he's motivated by rings, if he's motivated but motivated by going to the World Series, then maybe Xander Bogarts decides he's willing to change positions. Positions. Maybe he's willing to move to second or move to third or whatever to stay with the Red Sox because it's a better chance to win a ring. Maybe he's willing to change positions to go play for the Dodgers because it's a better chance to win a ring. Maybe he's willing to change positions to go play for the Mariners or the Tigers or the White Sox or the Phillies or any other, or the Braves or any other team that might be on the cusp of, the, of a World Series. If he's motivated by championships, then Xander Bogarts needs to look internally and say, okay, what can I do to best win a title? And if that means me playing second base or third base somewhere else, then so be it. If he's motivated by championships, then... Changing positions is a conversation he needs to have with himself. If Xander Bogarts is motivated by money, then he can get money anywhere. right? He can get money from a lot of different places. And a lot of those places will let him play shortstop. Hey, the Baltimore Orioles think they're coming out of a rebuild. Xander, you can come play shortstop for us. We'll sign you to an eight-year deal. We'll give you $215 million. Okay. If he's motivated by money... He can get that and also play shortstop. What's motivating Xander Bogarts will be the key to what he decides. He does not need to change positions for the good of the team. When he's a free agent, it's about what's good for me. What's good for my life, my happiness, my family. Motivated by championships, maybe you're moving positions. Motivated by money, different set of circumstances. What about if he's motivated by legacy? How much does it matter to Xander Bogarts 
to be a 15-year Red Sox player? How much does it matter to him to be a career Red Sox player? Because if it matters to him to do that, then once more, maybe he's willing to change positions. Hey, I will sacrifice my ego and go play second base so that I can be a Red Sox player forever. I saw what it did for Dustin Pedroia. I saw largely what it did for David Ortiz. That's what I want. If Bogarts wants that, the Pedroia resume, the mostly Ortiz resume, the Jason Veritek resume, if he wants to be beloved like that, well, then he might be willing to do whatever it takes to achieve that. That would involve changing positions, maybe next year, but certainly down the line. When Xander Bogarts comes to the conclusion of what's motivating him, then we can start to figure out if he'll change positions. But it's not about what's best for the team. When he becomes a free agent, it's about what's best for him. Think about any time in your career you've had job flexibility. You quit your job. Why? You want the freedom to go do what you want. You got fired from your job. You want the freedom now to go do what you want. When you are on the open market, it is about what best serves me. And that's just the reality. It's the reality for Xander Bogarts, and it's the reality for you listening in the car, and it's the reality for me listening here. When you are a free agent, it ain't about the team anymore, honey. It's about me, number one. What do I want? I want to win a title? Sure, I'll play second base for the Dodgers. I'll play second base for the Red Sox. I want to be a career Red Sox player. I'll go into Alex Cora's office and I'll say, you know what? At 32 years old, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to move. If it's about, hey, just show me the money, honey, then I'm going to take eight years, $220 million, and I'll go play for the Pittsburgh Pirates and they'll let me play shortstop. What's motivating Xander Bogarts? That's what he needs to find out. And then we can have those conversations. But if the Red Sox don't keep Bogarts, it's not going to be because of money. They can afford him. Egos are going to be the thing that derail this whole thing. Either Bogarts' ego or Story's ego or Devers' ego. Alex Cora has got to be able to find a way to connect with at least one of them to get the situation that could allow Xander Bogarts to stay. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. UVM men's basketball season ended last week on the floor in Buffalo in the NCAA tournament. Canamounts lost to Arkansas in the uh, first round. What's coming next for UVM? Alex Abrami, Burlington Free Press. He's going to join us on DEV. It's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you about my town. I'm going to tell you a big fat story, baby. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. The NCAA tournament wages on, but it wages on without UVM. Catamounts beaten last Thursday, 75-71 by Arkansas out of the SEC. Guy who was there covering it locally is our friend Alex Abrami over at the Burlington Free Press. Alex, thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Brady. Well, I appreciate you being with us. You know, Cats played well. I thought they did almost everything you would have needed to do to pull a 13-4 upset, Sands hitting free throws, especially in the second half. But what was the environment like in Buffalo on that Thursday? Uh, I think it was, I think it was great. I, I was um, 
across from UVM's bench on the other side uh, on press row. And behind me, I think it was the majority of the UVM fans. And I could hear them um, throughout the 40 minutes. Not very happy with most of the calls. <laughs> and I got, so I got, I got to experience what, uh, I guess, top-level officials in the, in the NCAA experience on a nightly basis because it was not uh, friendly at yeah. all. Um, so they were hearing it, but I think that a lot of that was deserved on both sides. I don't think they, we don't have to get into it too much. So I don't think it really ended up factoring in the game at the end, but I, I thought a lot of the calls were tough for both teams in, in that matchup. It wasn't really consistent. I don't know if you had that same take, but it was Twitter it was had the play. same take. That's for sure. Um, you know, the, the Ben Shungu play at the end where he hits the three and kind of got leg whipped. That one was questionable. The tough off. Finn Sullivan at the end that overturned, you know, with 10 seconds left to give Arkansas back the ball. Those, you know, those were tough, but the Arkansas fans didn't like the officiating either, but such is life in the NCAA tournament. Um, was there ever a point in the building where you thought UVM was going to win that game? I thought when they were down nine to start the second, or down seven, and then it was nine quickly, and they came back with that, I think it's 12-0 run. Yeah, I thought that even though there's so much time left, I thought the way they rode Davis, he made well. He he didn't make a didn't make these three point plays, but like those those and ones that looked like they were going to shift the tide a little bit, uh, and they did at the time. Uh, I thought there's like all right, they they had a bad finish to the first half, and they came out strong in the second half, and they're right there with plenty of time left. Uh, they're in good foul shape. I don't think Davis had any fouls. Shungu was good. So I thought at that moment they were going to – I thought they had stand a really good chance of pulling it off at that point. You know, it's it's hard to be mad at this because I said on, on Thursday leading up to the game that if UVM was going to win, they needed to get probably 40 points combined from Davis and Shungu. They got exactly 40. Benny gets 20 and Davis gets 20. But it was so oddly distributed. What happened – to Davis in the second half, he didn't score for the last 13 minutes of the game, and he was on the bench for some of that. You know, you know, some portion of the second half as well. Why was he is not a big a factor in the second half, even though his overall numbers were good? Yeah, not not only did he not score, he didn't take a shot in the last 13 minutes. Wow. And I, I think that well, first, like he needed a breather. Like he's not going to play 40 minutes, so he needed after that stretch where like he carried UVM on that 12 over on, he needed. A few minutes just to collect himself um so that that's fine uh i know it's critical time of the game but like you got to give the big guy some some time on the bench just to just to catch his breath um so he comes back i don't remember the time he came back in i it's probably probably between nine nine and ten minutes ago i think i have to double check the stats but uh arkansas changed its defensive coverage a little bit and um according to eric musselman that was their plan c um, to sort of um, take take Ryan away, take the three point shot away, and um, they were effective in that, you know. But I, I, as J- Becker said, John Becker said in the post game, they were still scoring points. I mean, they scored seventy one points. Yeah. Uh, Arkansas gives up sixty four, sixty five a game. It was they didn't rebound down the stretch, and they allowed Arkansas to get to the line pretty much every trip down. Uh, in the last five or six minutes, Arkansas didn't have a field goal in the last five minutes. I think it would, they were all free throws. So they couldn't, 
stop fouling and they couldn't get the key rebound down the stretch. I think that was the the difference. Um, I think in hindsight, yeah, you want Ryan Davis to have the ball. They were effective in doing that, getting him in the post a couple times on those on those feeds and can and setting up those potential and ones. Um, but those chances weren't there, and I think that's a, a lot to do with Arkansas's defense and how they changed their coverage. Burlington Free Press sports writer, award-winning sports writer, Alex Abrami with us here on the Brady Farkas Show on this Tuesday on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. You know, for me, I started to feel this way last week. I hadn't really thought about it before, but it kind of felt like there might be like a last dance component to this UVM team. Not saying that they won't be good in the future, but Shungu's graduating. Justin Missoula told me that I believe even though he has a COVID year left, he said he's gone. Isaiah Powell's the same. He told me that last week that he's not coming back. So there are guys that are eligible to come back that are not, in addition to the guys that are graduating. I don't know what's going to happen with Finn Sullivan and Cam Gibson and Davis himself, but I could see a scenario where a bunch of those guys do come back, and I could see a scenario where every single one of them moves on and the program is you know, down eight players from this year. Do you have any indication as to maybe what the future of the program looks like in that regard? I think um, I'm pretty sure like guys like Finn Sullivan and Cam Gibson are back. Okay. Um, I, I don't, unless something changes, you know, like last night, Eric Beckett left the program. He decided to transfer. Um, so that, that could be a possibility for other players. But my understanding is Finn Sullivan, Cam Gibson are back. Ryan Davis, you know, they honored him on senior night with Ben Shungu and Justin Mazula and, and Isaiah Powell. Uh, but he still has one more year of eligibility, like Isaiah does. Where does he go from there? Uh, where does he go from here? I don't. I don't know. I think that decision still has to be made. And they'll, they'll I mean, he could go. Out. He could go overseas. He could yeah. come back. He could go overseas and right away and play, or he could do what Steph Smith did and go, you know, test his medal at a at a Power Five conference. I yeah. don't I think any of those are possible. Exactly. But for Vermont's perspective, I think what they have coming back, um, and given the the state of the conference, they should be the overwhelming favorite next year. And that's yeah. that's a good position for them. The, the, are they going to be in a spot where they were this year, knocking on the door of a of an NCAA win? No, I don't think so. I don't think you can say that now. But I, I think they're in good shape given the amount of players coming back. Even though they're going to lose Ryan, most likely lose Ryan Davis, and obviously lose um, Ben Chungu. You know, we've chronicled the the allegations against the program, and I have speculated that I wonder how that might impact John Becker's future overall. So we'll leave that to the side. I've talked about that. But from a pure basketball standpoint, Becker has certainly acquitted himself as a very capable and good basketball coach. And there's a lot of openings or, or said to be coming openings kind of in this region. What do you know about Becker's desire to stay at UVM? I mean, have you heard about him poking around in the past? We've kind of, you know, at Duquesne a couple of years ago, like just from a pure basketball standpoint, what do you know about kind of where his head is at? That's a, it's, it's a good question. I haven't spoken to, to him about that, like, you know, on the side or anything like that in yeah. terms of like, what, what's he thinking lately? But I know in the past he's, he certainly put his name out there. Uh, Duquesne's one of them. Uh, I think the opening at UMass is a possibility. I, I don't know where they stand. You know, I'm not in the know uh, on those finalists and everything like that. But sure, I, I think any mid-major coach or any coach in general wants to move up, and he's proven that he can win at this level at a very high rate. I mean, look at his – he's almost – in 11 years, he's almost the – almost has the most wins in program history at your VM. Yeah. I think now he's, I think he's eight short of catching Tom Brennan. So um, he's proven he can win at the mid-major level. He's built UVM 
into a team that's on the doorstep of winning in the NCAA tournament. So I, I think at some point it's it's just a matter of time before he moves on to the next next gig. It's just finding the right job because I don't think there's a lot of great openings at the moment for him, or at least that would align with what um, a coach like Becker would want. You know, I'll get you out of here on this. What's the deal with the arena? Because I, I've lost track of what's going on here. The arena was getting built. Shovels were in the ground. Then COVID happens and everything gets stopped because of stay home, stay safe. Then we started up again. Then I heard, I've heard a million different things. So is the arena coming when it's supposed to? Or are we in an indefinite waiting period? Where are we at? I think we're in a waiting period. I, I haven't, I did a story a year ago about this. And I think they're, um, like they're still doing work at, at Gutterson and um the student center so i I think there's it's tough to say but i think it's still in the works i don't think it's not dead um the the fundraising is is still there um from um from tarrant um you know that's not from what i understand that's still going to happen the 30 million dollars it's just a question of when not if so um i think granted we've been on this for really for 30 years, I think, in yeah. terms of trying to get an arena. You just have to wait. You know, uh, you know, COVID threw this whole thing for a loop, and I know we're two years past the start of COVID, but stuff like this takes time. And um, I, I don't, I haven't heard anything in terms of that project being canned. I think that's still in the works. It's just they haven't secured the funding yet because they're not ready to move to that phase of, of the construction. Alex Abrami, award-winning sports writer, Burlington Free Press. He was with the UVM men's basketball team last Thursday. They're lost in the NCAA tournament against Arkansas, but a great ride it was. 17 wins in the regular season in the conference, 17-1, and and uh, 27 wins, 27 wins overall. So, Alex, man, appreciate the time as always, and we'll have you on again soon. All right. Thanks, Brady. Absolutely. Alex Abrami, Burlington Free Press. So a lot of good stuff there and a lot of stuff to digest. We're, we're you know, the crew is already working on cutting it up, and we'll get more to it in the 6 o'clock hour. A lot of what he said echoes what we've said. The stuff on the arena, that was pretty interesting. Stuff on Becker we can talk about, too, uh, as we move forward in this week. But I'm most interested right now on the guys that aren't going to be here next year. And it sounds like this UVM team is set to lose a lot. Now, I'm not saying I disagree necessarily with Alex that they shouldn't be the favorite next year. They very well you know, have, have probably earned that right. But if you're talking about missing, like, five to six key players from this year's team, I mean, that that's a significant portion of your roster. That's a lot of your scoring. So we'll, we'll talk about some of that in the 6 o'clock hour, too. But when we come back, CBS Sports Update, and then I feel bad for a guy I never thought I'd feel bad for. I'll tell you who that is. That's next on DEV. Stand with your thoughts at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Go up until 7 o'clock, then jazz with George Thomas, and then we've got uh, Eye on the World with John Batchelor. That's coming up again at uh, 9 o'clock here. Day 2 of that program here on WDEV. If you miss any of the show here, you can always check us out on the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Uh, just search for us there. It's free. You get it every single day 
Again, for free uh, right on your phone, tablet, computer, whatever, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're going to get to that guy I feel bad for. I never thought I'd feel bad for in about five minutes. But we do have some breaking Major League Baseball news. This one comes from Joel Sherman of the New York Post. Major League Baseball and the Players Association have reached a tentative agreement on a couple of different things. The rosters from April until May 1st will expand from 26 to 28 players. So from April 7th, opening day, until May 1st, the rosters will expand from 26 to 28 players. I actually love this. I'm completely fine with it. It's a a three-and-a-half-week spring training. We know that guys are going to be not necessarily fully built up, especially as pitchers, and this gives a team an opportunity to carry more pitchers and therefore reduce the risk of injury. So I'm I'm all for this rule. For the first three weeks of the season, 28 guys on the roster instead of 26 allows for you to carry more pitchers. I'm sure most teams will use those extra two roster spots for pitchers. That would be my assumption. And then you will be able to mix and match your rotation better and limit guys getting injured. So yes, I understand more pitching changes can mean more time to the game and we're all upset about pace of play and all that. But I'd rather the first three and a half weeks of the season take four minutes longer per game than see a guy who's not quite stretched out have to go longer because there's just a shortage of arms I and then get hurt. So 26 to 28 players on the roster, I'm all for that change. We also get what's being called the Shohei Otani rule, and this is big for teams that play the Angels. If the starting pitcher is also in the lineup, as a hitter, then even when the pitcher is removed that as the pitcher, he will still remain as the DH. So what hap- What this means, bottom line, is if the Red Sox are playing the Angels and Otani is hitting for himself, then he throws five innings. After he gets taken out as a pitcher, he's still the DH. What would happen in you know previous iterations of the rule is that when you take him out as the pitcher, you would lose the DH. And you'd have the pitcher in the lineup, the new pitcher. So now, Otani would be able to hit for himself. So his numbers, in theory, will then get a whole lot better because he's able to hit on the days that he pitches. So file that one away when you play the when you play the Angels. And this is the one that's going to cause the most consternation among people. The deal also includes a return to the runner at second to start extra innings but only for this 2022 season. Here you go. Sound off on it, 802-585-3026. A return of the man on second to start extra innings rule. That's where we're headed for 2022. Um, I am 50-50 on this. I like the rule. I think it's fun. I, st- I would not start it until the 12th inning. That's, that's just where I stand. I think that it is fun. It increases urgency. It ends the game earlier. Keeps guys from pitching longer than they have to. Reduces injury potentially. I think it causes a whole lot of strategy discussions. We like baseball to be a thinking game. Well, you start with the man on second. Well, is the offense going to bun him over? Is the is the pitching team going to intentionally walk him to set up the double play? And then what's going to happen? Are we going to bun him over there? Then are we going to walk the runner to load the bases? There's a lot of thinking that comes from it. I like the rule, but I'd like it to start in the 12th inning. 
starting in the 10th, feels too fluky. We do fluky in a lot of sports, but before we get to fluky, we play largely the real sport before we get there. What, I, what do I mean? Well, in, in hockey, we have an overtime period before we get to a shootout. I know it's, there's less people on the ice than normal hockey, I get, so it's already a little bit hokey. But we're playing hockey before we get to the shootout. In baseball, we're not playing full baseball before we get to hockey. I would like to see us play baseball for the 10th and 11th innings and then go to the fluky stuff. Starting it in the starting it in the 10th feels too fluky for me. I do like again the action, the urgency, the time of game shortens, pitchers aren't getting injured as much. That's all great. And the strategy's good too. I'm not a fan of it starting in the 10th inning. Because I I and I know the numbers didn't bear this out. But in my mind, I can't get over the idea that the away team has the distinct advantage. If the Red Sox are playing the Yankees and the Yankees are are at Fenway Park, I can't help but think the Yankees come out and put up a three spot and now the Red Sox are screwed. I know the numbers didn't actually bear that out. I was told last year the home team actually had more of an advantage than the road team, but I was shocked to find that out. Do we have that cut on that? Sarah Langs of MLB.com, she told us that. And, okay, we don't have it, but she told us that. I remember her, I remember her saying that, like that it was actually the home team, and I, I was shocked about that. But that's where we're headed. Now, it is, this still has to get ratified. The players in, in the uh, and Major League Baseball have agreed to it. The owners have to ratify it. It's expected to be ratified and will be there, and that's what's going to happen. There will be no more seven-inning doubleheaders. They are going to be nine-inning doubleheaders, so that's what you get. You're, you're going to get the nine-inning games back, but extra innings, you're going to have that runner at second to start, and they're going to start it right away again. Uh, Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. Frank says he likes extra innings. He does not like this new rule. Frank, I, I used to think that you didn't need it. And I think mathematically, you don't need it. right? Like, I, I saw that most games in extra innings end you know, after like 12 innings. There's not too many games going 14 innings or going 17 innings. There's really not that many games doing that. Most games are ending in you know 12. So that this rule was never needed. But I do like the strategy that it brings into the game, and I do like the urgency. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Again, the text line is open for you as well. All right, that guy that I feel bad for, that I never expected to feel bad for, is Baker Mayfield. I never expected to feel bad for Baker Mayfield, but I feel bad for him today because Baker Mayfield is now proof that putting yourself out there for the team is not always the best call. I was having my talk or I was having this talk earlier with my dad who used to be a Browns fan. Browns fan before they signed Deshaun Watson. He's ditched the team over the Watson stuff. But anyways, he said to me, "You know, I guess Baker shouldn't have played hurt." And the more I thought about it, he's right. Baker Mayfield last year played hurt. 
He played too hurt. He should not have played in that condition. We as fans, what do we think? We think that athletes are coddled. We think they're spoiled. We think they're selfish. And we think that they make enough money that that should just make them happy and that's good enough. That's what we as fans think. We also think that players owe it to the fans or owe it to the team to try to give it a go at all costs. Baker Mayfield is now proof that that attitude is flawed. Baker Mayfield, and I'm going to look into the camera on this one for our YouTube audience. Baker Mayfield would be in line to be a starting quarterback in the NFL today had he not played hurt last year. I repeat, Baker Mayfield would be in line to be a starting quarterback in the NFL today if he had not played hurt last year. To me, there is no denying that his his effort and desire to play through pain cost him dearly. He played with a torn labrum. He played with a bad foot. He was hobbling around. The Browns were bad as a result, and Baker was pretty bad too. Now, I'm not saying he's great when 100%. I don't believe Baker Mayfield at perfect condition is a Hall of Famer, but he's not as bad as the guy that we saw last year. He's not as limited as the guy that we saw last year. Baker, two years ago, went to the playoffs, went on the road, and won a game at Pittsburgh. He's like, How did we go from there to being unemployable? Well, because he played hurt. And maybe last year it was selfless motivation to play. He owed it to the city, to the team, to the organization, to the coaching staff. Maybe it was selfless. Maybe it was selfish. He wanted to play so he could perform for a second contract. I don't know what the motivation was, but I do know this. By trying to tough it out, Baker Mayfield greatly hurt his career. By playing and playing poorly... And then having all that lead to a bad attitude, Baker Mayfield has hurt his value and has hurt the perception of him. And now he is apparently unemployable. Baker Mayfield did not get the second contract from the Browns, and he is now not worth trading for, according to other teams around the NFL. So if he had just sat while he was hurt, what would we be saying right now? We'd be saying that Baker Mayfield was... You know, hey, he's he's coming off an injury, but he just took this team to the playoffs and he won a game on the road, and you know, we'll see what the Browns can do with him. The the perception of Baker Mayfield would be much, much higher today had he simply sat out last year. Instead, he tried to gut it out, and what he did was gut his career. If the memory of 2020 was our last memory, the Cleveland Browns may still have him as their quarterback, and if they decided to move on still, another team would be scooping him up. If Marcus Mariota can get a job for $18 million, then Baker Mayfield would have a job if the last memory was 2020. That, to me, is an undeniable fact. If he had just sat while he was hurt, he would have, he would be in a much better spot career-wise. Instead, he took all the risk, and he was crushed for it. And that is, I feel bad for him. Because he did what all the fans want you to do. They want you to try to play. They want you to be loyal. They want you to take a shot at it. The fans want the glory, and they want the starter out there as much as they can. He tried to do it, and not only did the team fail, but he has now failed as a result. His current team doesn't appreciate him enough to give him the benefit of the doubt, and now the rest of the league doesn't give him the benefit of the doubt because they saw on tape last year he wasn't very good, and the injury apparently is not a good enough excuse. And you know who Baker Mayfield reminds me of today? I know someone in their car 
listening to this or listening on the podcast after the fact. Someone is thinking the same name that I am, and that name is Isaiah Thomas. Remember Isaiah Thomas for the Celtics? Isaiah Thomas, before the Celtics got Kyrie, IT averaged 29 points a game, and the team had gone to -to back-to-back Eastern Conference Finals. We were talking about Isaiah Thomas getting a max deal, backing up the Brinks truck. But he played in the playoffs his last year in the Celtics with a bad hip, and then it turned out to get really bad, and it became really hurt, and that was it. And that has been it for IT's career. If Isaiah Thomas just sits at the end of that regular season and doesn't play in the playoffs and his hip doesn't get worse, I think he gets the max contract or close to it. He may never get traded from the Celtics for Kyrie, and even if he did, he would have been a big asset somewhere in Cleveland, I assume. But he played. He tried to tough it out. He wanted to help the team, and he cost himself his roster spot. Like Danny Ainge said to him, basically, thanks for trying to help us win a title. It Now you're damaged goods. We're moving on. So IT's loyalty to the Celtics got him shipped out of town because he was hurt. He didn't get his money, and he lost his roster spot. And since then, his career has never been the same. In five years since Isaiah Thomas left the Celtics, five years, he's played 99 career games. Five years, 99 career games. That's it. In five years, he's played essentially one season of those five. And he's played with the Cavs, the Lakers, Denver, Washington, the Pelicans, Dallas. I think he might have even moonlighted for the Clippers. Like, he took a chance. He went for he went for the gusto, and it backfired on him dearly. I feel bad for Isaiah Thomas, the way his career has gone. I feel bad for Baker Mayfield for where his career is at today. It is a, they are living testaments to the idea that just trying to play through pain and trying to live up to the gladiator stereotype and trying to be, to, to whatever the motivation, if they had just sat well injured, they would have been better off. But instead they played and they paid the price dearly for it. So, and, but I feel worse for IT than I do for Baker because like Baker might've felt like he needed to play to prove himself, IT didn't need to play. IT had 29 points a game. He was going to get the money if he was healthy. If he had just sat, he would have been fine financially. But he didn't. A lot, lot of text, actually, on this. 802-585-3026. Uh, Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury. Text line. Uh, Travis wants to ask me about baseball. I'll get to that um, after this here. And... Okay, so I'll get to that after I answer these texts. Matt and Williston, what is the exact financial situation with Baker Mayfield? Well, Baker Mayfield is going to make $18 million this upcoming season in some way, shape, or form. That's happening no matter what. He's got a fully guaranteed contract. The Browns exercised his fifth-year option, so that's what this is. His rookie contract, the fifth-year option, $18 million. If Baker Mayfield is traded for... The new team has to take on the entirety of that $18 million, or the Browns can pay part of it to make it more palatable. That is why teams are not lining up to trade for Baker Mayfield. It's not that they necessarily think that he stinks. They also don't, they just don't think he's worth $18 million. 
So they're not trading for him. Then, if Baker Mayfield is just outright cut by the Browns, if he's just outright released, then as I understand it, a team can sign him for whatever they want, and then the Browns have to pay the difference. So let's just say that uh, Baker Mayfield signs with Seattle for $2 million. Seattle pays two, and the Browns pay 16. He's getting $18 million no matter what, but it's just kind of how it gets distributed. So that answers that question. Wilson in Montpelier, what do you think Baker Mayfield should do as far as where he should go? Well, kind of like I just said in that example. I think that Baker Mayfield should try to get to Seattle. That's, Seattle is not a great team. And by the way, Keyshawn Johnson, a former NFL wide receiver, he said the same thing this morning. I think Seattle would be the best by far, and here's why. Because Pete Carroll doesn't mind conflict. He likes that stuff, like that that what Baker brings, that conflict, that, um, I don't want to say arrogance, but that confident approach. I, I Look, maybe Pete is fine with Baker, but more, more than anything, like I don't think that the Seahawks are going to be very good, but as of now, the Seattle Seahawks do have DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, Rashad Penny. There are some real offensive weapons there. Will Disley, uh, Noah Fant, they're okay at tight end. There are real weapons there offensively for Seattle. That's a spot where Baker could go and potentially have a chance at looking good. Defense, the, the, the NFC isn't very good. The division is very good, so those will be tough games. But if Baker wants to reestablish value and play right away, Seattle's a spot I think that could be pretty good. Pete Carroll, 70 years old. I don't think he wants to go through a four-year rebuild. So I don't know that they're going to gut that roster completely. So they have those good players. They have a bunch of draft picks now from the Russell Wilson trade. I'd try to get to Seattle if I were Baker. Carolina needs a quarterback. I, I want no part of Carolina. Teddy Bridgewater failed there. Sam Darnold failed there. Cam wasn't good there last year. Matt Rule's already changed offensive coordinators. I want nothing to do with Carolina. So if I'm Baker, I want Seattle. Or I sit. I just sit through the offseason, work on myself, and then I wait for training camp and preseason and I see who gets hurt. Because it happens every year. Somebody gets hurt and they're too afraid to turn it over to their backup so they go to the waiver wire and that's where Baker can be with a desperate team who needs help. Washington lost their quarterback last year in week one. We saw... The Panthers turned to Cam at some point in the season. We saw Dak get hurt a couple of years ago. I would just wait. If it's not Seattle, I would just wait. And uh, Marcus in Bradford asks a very high-level question. Brady, you said that Baker, if he's he might be released. Can you explain the difference between being waived and being released? Well, ironically enough, I actually did a bunch of research on this today because it is confusing. So... The bottom line is this. I'm going to make this as simple as I possibly can. In season, while the NFL season is going on, once the NFL trade deadline passes, I think it's week nine, once the trade de- or week, yeah, week eight maybe, no, week nine, once the trade deadline passes, every player who's cut goes on waivers. So once the trade deadline passes in the season, every single player goes on waivers, no matter what, whether they're a rookie, a, a fifth-string long snapper, or Odell Beckham Jr., once the trade deadline passes, every team or every player that gets cut goes on waivers. Until then, so from the start of the league year, which I think was March 
18th or whatever, until the trade deadline, then being waived and being released are two different things. If a player has three years or less in the NFL, they, when they get cut, they go on waivers. If a player has four years or more in the NFL, a.k.a. they're a veteran, then they just get released. And the reason why is because, hey, you made it four years in the league. Kind of your benefit of being a veteran is that you're going to get kind of now to choose your, you know, to dictate your own future. Young guys, you know, hey, the draft, you didn't have any control over you went, and now uh, you don't have any control here. You're going on waivers. But Baker Mayfield's played four years in the league. So if the Browns say they don't want him, he just flat out gets released, and now he can choose where he wants. He's not subjected to the waiver wire and who may claim him, etc. So if they cut him, he will have a chance to go wherever he wants because he will just be outright released. So hopefully that was easy to follow because it really is a tough, um, you know, it, it is a confusing situation. So it's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Okay, let's get to who's saying what. We do it every single day. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? Mac Jones. Good Lord. Mel Kuyper's got to slow down on this. Mac Jones ain't going to work, folks. It's not going to work. He's got to come to terms with it. It's not going to work. They really said that? Every damn thing is politics and race, and I'm losing my mind over it. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. Who's Saying What brought to you by Vermont Laser Wash, that's central Vermont's home of unlimited car washes. For that, it's just $20 a month. If you want just one free car wash, well, just text the word Vermont to 30 and then 400. Frank's mad at me because he thinks he's saying funny things that I'm not saying on the air. Well, Frank, I'm not looking at the Facebook live chat every single moment of the show. It's on a different screen behind me. So I go to it every couple of minutes. So when you rapid fire funny jokes at me, I don't see them all right as you say them. So there you go. Frank's being funny uh, about Baker Mayfield. And uh, he compared me to Dan Patrick saying Dan Patrick would have used my humor. Well, Dan Patrick has nine producers looking at every screen and they can tell him everything that everybody says. And uh, Travis wants to know about major league baseball rules, which ones that are new I like and which ones I hate. Uh, the one I like the best is the balanced schedule. We won't see that until 2023. What do I hate? Off the top of my head, I don't know that I hate any of them. Um, I like that the shift is being altered next year. I like the balanced schedule. I'm a fan of the extra inning rule, although I wish it was the 12th. I, I think that... I probably don't like the new universal D not the universal DH rule, the Otani rule I just talked about. Like if Otani is, you know, taken out of the game as the pitcher, I don't like that he can still hit the entire game just because, you know, that's going to come back to hurt the Red Sox and my Mariners. So that's what I would say. All right, let's get to who's saying what. Let's talk a little hockey for everybody who gets mad at me. We don't talk enough hockey. This one is for you. Bruins beat the Canadians last night. Bruins win in overtime three, two yesterday was also the NHL trade deadline. Jake DeBrusque was not traded by the Bees. Now, remember, he had asked for a trade, and it came out maybe a month ago or so. Started playing really well, actually, for the Bees, and he's, now he's going to remain a Bruin. He gets a two-year deal, $8 million. So yesterday, about not being traded, DeBrusque said a couple of interesting things, this being one of them. It was uh, definitely a difficult day. It's been a difficult week, and, um, you know, it's one of those things where 
uh, like I said, it was a difficult week and, um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and you don't necessarily know. And, um, I think that's the one thing that I've taken away from it, you know, from past 4 PM today is, uh, you know, I haven't felt clarity in three months. So I haven't known where, if I'm going to go or where I'm going to go or any of that kind of stuff. So now I know, and, uh, you know, it's nice to kind of have that, um, someone. You know, I get the clarity thing. That makes sense. But otherwise, I'm kind of confused by what DeBrusque is saying. Like, Jake, you asked for the trade. So you say that it's been tough to not have clarity. You brought this on yourself, did you not? You were the guy who went to the Bruins and said, I want out. At that point, you open up the door to all of those other things that happen. The lack of clarity is a result of what you wanted. The distractions are a result of what you wanted. The conversations are a result of conversations you wanted to have happen behind closed doors. I, I, I don't quite get this. Yeah, the trade deadline is tough on a lot of people, right? It's tough on veterans. It's tough on people with families. It's tough on minor leaguers that don't know if they're being traded. It shouldn't be that tough on the guy who asked for it. Now, maybe it's tough because he didn't ultimately get what he wanted, but the process of the last couple of months, that is, you brought that on yourself. Jake DeBrusque brought that on himself. So I, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy in that regard. It's tough because you created the tough. Right? Am I, am I wrong in that? Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line? I'm not going to pretend to be Mr. Hockey here. And I'm not going to pretend to know everything about your 2021-2022 Bruins. I'm not going to lie to you. I watched some of the game last night. I watched some of a lot of games. But I'm not I'm not in the weeds on the Bruins like I am on the Patriots or the Red Sox. It's just the truth. Jake DeBrusque asked for the trade. And he therefore invited all the unpleasantness that came as a result of it. Think about this. If you're fighting with your girlfriend... You're fighting with your wife, and you ask her, hey, honey, let's sit down and have a conversation. Let's talk about what's wrong. And then she tells you everything that's wrong. Well, guess what? You invited it. You asked for it. You wanted to have that conversation. And then she gets to say her part, and you know what? Yeah, the conversation was tough. You asked for it. You wanted to have it. So at that point, I cease to feel bad for you. Sure, what she said might have hurt, but you asked her to say it. Then DeBrusque went on to say this about staying in Boston. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a, you know, it's one of those things where I don't know, I don't look at it as a negative situation. You know, anytime that you can play for a team that has a chance to win the Stanley Cup, it's a positive, and um, that's why we play the game is to win the Stanley Cup. And so DeBrusque says you play to you play the game to win the Stanley Cup. You win. You play the game to win the Stanley Cup. I mean, really? That one doesn't quite add up for me as well. Look, like, we talked earlier about Xander Bogarts, like, what motivates athletes. Clearly, Jake DeBrusque is not just motivated by winning the Stanley Cup. And by the way, I'm fine with it. I am. I told you. Players are motivated by different things. Some want championships, some want money, some want fame, some want statistics, some want playing time, some want opportunity. Jake DeBrusque says you play to win the Stanley Cup. Jake DeBrusque, I think, has told us 
He's not necessarily playing to win the Stanley Cup. He's looking out for himself. Because if Jake DeBrusque was fully invested in just winning the Stanley Cup, then he's already on a good team. He's already on a playoff team. He's already on a team with playoff experience. He's already on a team that's been to the Stanley Cup in the last few years. He's been to the Stanley Cup in the last few years. If DeBrusque really thought it was all about trying to win the Stanley Cup, then he would have been okay with whatever his role is on the Bruins because they're in a position to win the Cup. But it's not that way. Jake DeBrusque asked for a trade. Jake DeBrusque wanted to go somewhere else where he would get a different opportunity. And what's the opportunity that he wanted? Some place where he can be the guy, I'm sure. Some place where he can be a focal point. I true, I believe that Jake DeBrusque would be okay going to a team that's not as good, that can't win the cup as long as he gets to be at center stage. And again, I don't begrudge him for that. I think that Jake DeBrusque wants to win the cup, but I think he wants to be the reason that you win the cup. And that's different from what's happening in Boston. If he just wanted to win the cup, he would have been fine all along with how things were going for him in a Bruins uniform. But no, that's not what he wants. That's not good enough. He wants to go somewhere else where he can be a focal point, and I'm sure he'd like to win the cup as a result of that. Think about Gordon Hayward. Gordon Hayward had a chance to win an NBA title with the Boston Celtics. What did he do? He went to the New he went to the Charlotte Hornets. Why did he go to the Hornets? More money, fine. Don't begrudge him for that. More money, and he can go be the focal point. And yeah, he'd like to win a title, but he wants to be the reason why. He doesn't want to be a bit player in Boston. And he basically said as much, and I respect him for that. DeBrusque is now out here saying, I want to win the cup. This is, it's a good thing to be here because I got a chance to win the cup. That's why I play. That's not why you're playing, apparently. You're looking for something different. Just say it like Gordon Hayward did. And let's move on. I'd respect the honesty. Now DeBrusque has a two-year deal. He's going to be in Boston, and I don't know if he's happy here. We're going to talk about it tomorrow with Tom Karen, Red Sox and Bruins insider over at Nesson. He's going to be with us uh, tomorrow at 545 as he is every single Wednesday. All right. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right. It came down to the 11th hour, but the Boston Red Sox apparently learned a very important lesson. I'll tell you what that is. That's next on WDEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. The show is brought to you in part by Pro Driver Training. That's Pro Driver Training, Vermont's premier truck driver training school online at ProDriverCDL.com. Working on your Class A, Class B CDLs, also passenger and advanced skills training as well. Again, they're online at prodrivercdl.com. It took right up until the end of the 11th hour, but the Boston Red Sox have learned a very important lesson. You do not want to go to battle with your star player, with your star players. And I thought... And it looked like the Red Sox were about to do just that. And oh boy, would that have been stupid. But at the last second, the Red Sox wised up. Listen to this. Here is the situation. Today is the day for players and teams 
to settle on contracts, right? To avoid going to arbitration. Today is the deadline. And we heard from, I think it was Alex Spear of the Boston Globe, who said that the that Rafael Devers and the Red Sox did not come to a settlement. So what they're going to do is go to trial. They're going to go to a hearing, rather. And then, just a little while ago, Mark Feinsand comes out and says, a, a last-minute miracle. The Red Sox endeavors agree to a an $11.2 million contract for 2022. Bless you, Chaim Bloom, or whoever made this happen, because this going to trial, with going to a hearing with Rafael Devers, could have been catastrophic and needed to be avoided, and thank goodness it was. Now, I'm not going to get way into the minutia on this, but bottom line, here's what happens. A major league player comes to the big, comes to the big leagues and has six years of team control. So Rafael Devers comes to the major leagues. The Red Sox own his contract for the first six years of his career. The first you know, years one through three of his career, Rafael Devers makes a fixed low you know, league minimum type salary. Years four through six, you get paid based on your performance. It's still not a lot, but it's significantly bigger than what you have just been making for the last three years. And each year you're in arbitration. That's years four, five, and six, your, ar your arbitration years. Each year you're in that, you go up based because you're an older veteran player. The better you play, the more money you get. So what happens is for these players that are arbitration guys, like, Rafael Devers was always going to be on the Red Sox. So it's just a question of how much money Rafael Devers was going to get. So Rafael Devers' agent submits a number, and the Red Sox submit a number. I'm just making up numbers. Let's say that Rafael Devers went to the Red Sox. His agent said, we think that Rafael Devers for this season is worth $10 million. The Red Sox come back and say, you know what? We think he's worth $5 million. Usually, cooler heads prevail, and they settle at $7.5 million, and everybody goes away relatively happy. Well, we had heard today from Alex Spear of the Boston Globe that the Red Sox endeavors, they didn't settle. There was too big of a disagreement between the two sides, and that they were going to go to a hearing. And what happens at that hearing? The team goes to the hearing and tells Devers' camp all the reasons He's not worth what they think he is. That is not good for a relationship. And that's what the Red Sox did to Mookie Betts, and it pretty much ruined their relationship. The Red Sox took Mookie Betts to an arbitration hearing. Mookie was ticked about it. He was hurt by it, didn't think they valued him, heard all the reasons why they didn't think he was as good as he thinks he is, and said, you know what? I'm not resigning here. And the Red Sox lost Mookie Betts. Marcus Stroman got mad at the Blue Jays. They took him to arbitration. Dylan Betances got mad at the Yankees. They took him to arbitration. And there was a big public spat afterwards about all the things the Yankees said about Betances. Going to an arbitration hearing is not a great thing. And Rafael Devers is a guy the Red Sox want to and need to have a long-term relationship with. The last thing that they could have done, in my mind, was go to an arbitration hearing and tell him why he's not as good as he thinks he is. So, Bless you, whoever got this deal done. $11.2 million for this year. Remember, the money doesn't matter to me. I, I don't care. Like I just want Rafael Devers happy. 
I want Rafael Devers playing for the Red Sox for the next eight years, and to 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 you know to kick off negotiations on the wrong foot. That would be a big problem for me. Like, do you remember Super Bowl week? You know, our radio row at home we had we had Aaron Miller on. Aaron Miller played hockey at UVM, was a 14-year NHL player. I asked him this question. I said, Aaron, when did you realize that the NHL was a business? What was the moment you realized it wasn't a game, you realized it was a business? And here was his answer. Yeah, I learned some tough lessons on that. I had to go to arbitration twice. Oh. And, uh, you know, I, I really recommend that every pro athlete at some point go to arbitration and sit yeah. there. And listen to the, the to the organization that you think you know, they love you. Uh, believe me, they'll they'll trade you. They'll do anything uh, for a better deal. And to sit at a table and, and hear your organization just talk about what you're bad at and, and why they shouldn't pay you, it's uh, it's quite an experience. And it, it'll it'll show you that uh, it's just a business. I mean that that that's a pro athlete of 14 years talking about his arbitration experience. Now he says I recommend everybody do it, but he's like I just want you to hear what happens there. I I don't need Rafael Devers to have the Aaron Miller experience. I need Rafael Devers to sign an eight-year deal worth 210 million dollars and hit fourth for me and drive in you know 110 runs, hit 30 bombs, and have 50 doubles. That's what I need for the next eight years. And the Red Sox almost took him to an arbitration hearing. That would have been the height of stupidity. That would have been the height of stupidity because of the Boston Red Sox. It took them a while, but they evidently learned their lesson. You cannot repeat the Mookie Betts situation with Devers. If Bogarts leaves, there's a different set of circumstances. But if Devers leaves over arbitration like Mookie did, you are in a real bad spot. So kudos to the Red Sox for coming to their senses and not allowing this to happen because arbitration, it can really cause bad blood. It did for Mookie. It did for Stroman. It did for Batances. Not a not a fun experience for a player to hear all the reasons why their team doesn't value them that much. When I I mean, I was prepared to rip the Red Sox today. Like I have it, I have it pre-written down in my segment in my show notes. What are the Red Sox doing? Do they learn nothing from Mookie? That's what I have written down on my sheet. And then about a half an hour ago, man, maybe an hour ago, during the afternoon news service, the tweet comes across from Feinsand saying, hey, a miracle, the Red Sox endeavors have agreed to an agreement. I have, so I had to change my plan. Red Sox apparently, it took a little long, but they did learn their lesson from Mookie Betts. And Rafael Devers, he was always going to be a Red Sox player. It's just a question of how much money he was going to make. And here was the other kicker. Here was the other kicker, that this year, because of the lockout, usually the arbitration hearings happen in the offseason. The arbitration hearings this year, they're going to happen in the season because there really was no traditional offseason. So now, this year, you were risking... Having the trial on Monday, you know, the hearing on Monday and asking Devers to go play on Tuesday and all of a sudden be happy for you? That's <laughs> oh, I that's the situation I want to know part of. I'm like, hey, Rafi's uh, hearing is on May 10th. And then Rafi walks away upset and then all of a sudden goes in the tank for two months because he's PO'd about what happened at arbitration. That that was that is it that is going to happen to somebody. Guaranteed. Luckily it won't be happening 
to Devers. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury. Text line is open. Also, two other things on the Red Sox real quick. The Red Sox are going to wear a patch to honor the life of Jerry Remy all season. I love that. Red Sox broadcast certainly will not be the same without the Rem Dog. We'll miss him uh, on our television sets on Nesson. There will be a black commemorative patch there for Jerry Remy. And then three, uh, Garrett Whitlock was just nasty today. I mean, Sox won in spring training. They won six straight. I just looked at a couple of highlights briefly of Whitlock. He was throwing some filthy sliders in there. And, you know, he's the guy right now I want as that fifth starter while Chris Sale is hurt. 96-98 fastball, change up with movement, fastball with run, slider that's filthy. You've got enough pitches to be a starter. Tanner Houck, to me, doesn't have enough pitches yet. He can be a dynamite reliever. Whitlock's got starter stuff. I like what I saw there. We'll talk to TC about it tomorrow. When we come back, we'll end the show. The Patriots, are they? they almost did something that I would have really been scratching my head at. They didn't do it, but they almost did it. I'll tell you what that is. That's next on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. A couple minutes left here. I want to get to that Patriot story. Um, yesterday we talked a lot about... Leonard Fournette visiting the Patriots. Now, Leonard Fournette, the running back, ultimately ended up signing again with the Buccaneers. But are the Patriots about to trade Damian Harris? Like, listen, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. Listen to what Phil Perry of NBC Sports Boston had to say about this. I think the other thing you have to consider is, when you look at this, if they do end up adding Fournette, who makes a visit to the Patriots today, you might be moving on from another running back. And I look at Damian Harris as somebody who was a 2019 draft pick going in the last year of his rookie contract. You have a young running back who plays essentially the exact same role in Ramondre Stevenson. And it worked out great between those two guys last year because you could mix and match and you could keep them both fresh. But again, Harris in the last year of his deal, you have a young player at the same position. Are you going to keep both? Okay, so Fournette doesn't actually come here, right? He signs with Tampa. But I... I don't get the Patriots' potential methodology there. And I'm on the same track as Phil. If they signed Fournette, I could easily see them trading Harris. I'd be okay trading Harris, but not for adding someone like Fournette at at, you know, at his expense. Like, if the Patriots want to trade Harris, I'm fine with it. But I would not have been okay with bringing in someone like Fournette. Leonard Fournette reportedly wanted $12 million per year. Why would I be okay trading a younger, cost-controlled running back for a older, more expensive, and has been injured a lot player. That would have been like the height of craziness by the Patriots. You listen to all the cap people, all the analytics people, what do they tell you? Running back is not a position you need to invest in monetarily. Basically, anybody can be a successful running back as long as you have a good offensive line. The Patriots have a cheap, cost-controlled running back in Damian Harris, and they wanted to, like, that's the gold standard, right? Like, that's the goal. Cheap, cost-controlled running back. And the Patriots were maybe going to get rid of him to bring in an older, injured player with a lot of tread on those, with a lot of wear and tear on those tires. That I that would have been, like, that would have flummoxed me completely. Like, if they want to trade Harris, 
and just roll with Ramondre Stevenson and James White and Ty Montgomery and somebody they get in the draft, like that that's totally fine. Like if they want to do that, that's fine. If they can get value for Damian Harris and they can roll with other running backs, I'm cool with that. Leonard Fournette would not have been the guy that I jettisoned Damian Harris for. Sam in Burlington says that both Harris and Fournette are both injury prone. I'll give you that. Harris has missed time with injury. I'll tell you this. I'd rather have my injury prone running back at, you know, uh, $2 million a year than $12 million a year. That's for sure. If you're telling me that Damian Harris can only play 13 games next year, well, I'd rather have his salary than Leonard Fournette's 13 games. And that's just the way it goes. So, all right. Yeah, Patriots did not get Fournette, and that's good. Be on the lookout for potential Damian Harris trade because they're looking to, to to get a running back. Harris could be the guy on the way out. Get the running back in the draft. Don't don't go and sign 10 to $12 million running backs that are 27 years old. Just would not have been smart. So, um, all right, that's it. Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Go find the podcast, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm Brady. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, on WDEV.